Well, good morning once again. Great to see you all here this morning. And I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17, finishing out, Lord willing, chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. And the title of our message this morning is From Discouragement to Encouragement. From Discouragement to Encouragement. Please follow along as I begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, which says this. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. Well, we're looking at uh, the topic of discouragement to encouragement. And this passage actually breaks uh, verses 12 and 13. And we see Paul being discouraged in verses 14 through 17, we see Paul being encouraged. And so that's where the break's going to be this morning, which is what we'll see. But as I was thinking about this, I uh, thought I would begin by reading a, um, the results of a survey that was sent out to high school graduates coming back for their 20-year high school reunion. So for some of you, that's in the past. For some of you, that's in the future. Some of you are right about there. But this is these are... 38-year-olds who are answering this survey, and uh, the, one of the questions on the survey was, what is the biggest trial you've gone through in the past 20 years? And uh, 14% said that they didn't want to share, so that was, that was fine. 6% said their biggest trial was filling out the survey uh, or, or deciding whether or not to come to the reunion. Uh, 8% said that they could not think of trials that were worth mentioning. 10% mentioned losing a job or deciding to change careers, 12% saying moving from one state to another or transitioning from one place to another caused times of adversity or adjustment, 20% talked about health issues, and 30% mentioned that going through the loss of a parent or a child or a loved one was something that caused them great pain, and for some of them it was still a daily battle. And I was thinking about discouragement. There's one passage that when I think about someone who is discouraged, actually, if you you want to turn there, you can. I'll go ahead and read it, but you can keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But in 2 Samuel 18, you have a victory, a, a battle where David's army won, but David's son, Absalom, who was against David, was killed in that battle. And every time I read this, I just think, wow, it's, so, it's such a great portrayal of someone who's going through such great grief. Listen to these words, Second Samuel 18, 
This is just after David heard that his son Absalom was dead. It says in verse 33 of 2 Samuel 18, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. It's interesting. The victory was turned into mourning. We think of mourning turned into victory, but that day the victory was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it and said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I, I can't help reading that without just feeling. Uh, I love the way that his words are recorded and just, you could just see he could do nothing else but repeat, my son, my son, my son. Uh, and, and, and I know that um, that... No one here uh, is immune to trials, to difficult times. And yet, I think that we need to recognize that uh, times of discouragement um, can be overcome. But I I wanted to begin with the question, just to kind of get our minds kind of going here. Is discouragement sin? Is discouragement sin for a believer? Is it sinful to be discouraged? Some of you are shaking your heads. Speak out. No. Okay, it's not sin. All right. Is despair sin for a believer? I see your heads nodding. Somebody speak out. Yes, good. All right, we've got it. Okay, so so I think... I think that's right, that despair is, is sin. However, I would make a, a caveat to that because if you, if you turn back in, in 2 Corinthians to chapter 1, verse 8, read 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 with me. It's probably just a page behind you there. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even to live. And there Paul says that he was despaired. He doesn't seem to, um, to mention it as sin. And I, I was trying to reconcile these a little bit, although the, they don't need to be reconciled because they're not at a, opposed to each other. Um, discouragement is not necessarily sin, right? But despair, that is having no hope. The word despair actually means without, or it could mean no passage or no exit. Um, it's, despair is the complete absence of hope. 
However, what's interesting is that this word in the New Testament can be used both positively and negatively. Negatively, it is used to speak of despair or having no hope at all uh, about eternity. Um, Positively, this is used as um, having... um, Let's see, where where did I find that passage? Um, It it can be used positively as as having... um, uh, no hope, for for example, oh, no, no, no. let me let me look at this. Take uh, take a look back at Second Corinthians one verse eight. He said, "For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, or brothers, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even even to live. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not have confidence in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead." And so what he's saying here is that his despair was not one where he had no hope of eternal life. His despair was that he didn't see any hope of surviving it physically. He's just using this word in kind of a neutral way saying, we thought we were dead. We despaired of life. Not eternal life, he's talking about physical life. We're not sure exactly what this situation was. It could have been the uprising in in Acts chapter 19 of the um, idol workers in Ephesus who were wanted to kill him and, and were upset because his preaching affected many people's lives and they weren't buying idols anymore. And so there was a riot. It could have been that. It could have been something else. But there was some time in his life where he didn't see a way out physically. Spiritually, he was not in despair, but physically he despaired his life. Um. In Second um, Corinthians four verses six through ten, he also uses the word despair. But he says in in verse Second Corinthians four verse six, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. So there he uses it again. This tells us in the same book that even though he despaired of life in chapter one, that was earthly life. Even though he was persecuted, he wasn't crushed. Even though he was perplexed, he was not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. And yet he was discouraged. We see in verses 12 through 13 of 2 Corinthians 2 that Paul is discouraged. And so we're going to look at that first. Take a look at verse 12. When I came to Troas. Troas is one of these places I'm fascinated with. I actually, in preparing for this, kind of got diverted and, and did a whole little study on Troas just because I was, I was like, man, Troas is an amazing place. It's, it's the little church that never happened. It's the, it's the church that, I mean, Troas could have could have been one of Paul's 
We could have had the book of Troas, you know, because Paul visited there. And it seems like when he visited there, he was hindered. In in Acts chapter 16, he first visited Troas and he was there. And and just to get a mental picture of the map here, let's let's again familiarize ourselves with the northern Mediterranean world, which is where Paul is at. So uh, over on the, the far west, you have Italy, which is shaped like a boot, right? And then you have uh, the Adriatic Sea uh, in between Italy and Greece. And Greece looks like it's kind of a, a snowman if you drew it with really squiggly lines. It's two circles, uh, and it's, it's, it looks like two grease blotches. So you have Italy, you have Greece, and then you have the Aegean Sea, and you have Turkey. And uh, southern Turkey is Asia Minor. That's where Ephesus was. And north of there is Troas. Troas was the port city for the city of Troy. It was a famous Roman city. And so it was there just north of Ephesus. And just across from uh, that, uh, just across the Aegean Sea, so you've got Turkey separated from, from a huge inlet that's so big they call it a sea, connected to the Mediterranean Sea. But in between Turkey and Greece is, this, uh, is this, the Aegean Sea. And, and if you cross it, you get over to northern Greece which is where Philippi was, that's Macedonia. And Paul's first visit to Troas uh, was, what he was, he was um, wanting to stay there, and yet he got a vision right away from the Macedonian call, come to Macedonia, a Macedonian man. He goes over to Philippi and the church in Philippi gets. So if you're reading the book of Acts and you come across this place, Troas, and you're like, wow, that's a great place. I wonder what's going to happen here, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, nothing happens. Paul arrives, but then he quickly leaves. And then uh, you get to chapter 20, uh, uh, which of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, which is, of course, right after that riot in Acts chapter 19. Paul leaves, goes back to Macedonia after the riot. Then he heads back east to Troas. It's about a five-day journey from Philippi to Troas. So it's five days by boat across that, uh, that inlet in those days in the first century. And he heads back, and he arrives at Troas, and, and you think, wow, this is going well. He's preaching, and people are listening, and he preaches a sermon till midnight, and Eutychus falls out of a window and dies, right? Third-story window, young man named Eutychus is listening to Paul, and Paul I mean, is preaching till midnight, but uh, um, uh, he falls out and dies, so Paul goes, raises him to life, and they stay up talking till, till the next morning, and then Paul leaves again. So you're like, what's going on here? You know, and, and we don't really know what happened at Troas, but we find it again here, and it, this is probably somewhere between Acts 16 and Acts 20. It could have happened in Acts 20, after Ephesus, but we're not exactly sure, but it's likely it happened before. At some point, Paul established a church, or the church was established in Troas. We know there was no church there in chapter uh, 16 of Acts. There was a church in chapter 20, and we have this place. In Look at verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 2. Now, when I came to Troas, for the gospel of Christ, and a door was opened for me in the Lord. So this is great. I mean, Paul has been discouraged because the church in Corinth is not behaving like it should. It's not obedient to the Lord. It was a church, as you know, with many problems. They, they, had, um, uh, they were divided. They kind of winked at sexual sin. They had all kinds of other issues going on in the church with divorce, and, and they're tolerating things. People were getting drunk at the communion table. I mean, this was a church with a lot of problems, a lot of reason for Paul to be 
grieved, but one of the biggest was because uh, he had visited there. He had had a painful visit, um, a sorrowful visit. Uh, it was a shorter visit than he had wanted to be there, and apparently somebody opposed him to his face, and so he left. And then he wrote a letter, which we don't have, called the Severe Letter, and, and, and he had sent it there, and now he's, um, he, he had been ministering in Ephesus, um, but he left Ephesus, and he's waiting for Titus because he sent the letter to Corinth with Titus. And he wants to hear, did they receive it? Because in that letter, he admonished them to be obedient. And we know that from the way he writes about that letter in 2 Corinthians. And one of the issues of obedience was certainly that this person who had, who had been so disruptive um, needed to be disciplined. And so he was encouraging them to be obedient and hoping that they would be obedient to the Lord. And he's waiting to hear back, and he goes up to Troas, and it says in verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. Now, what does that mean? It means that he was just, uh, he was restless. He was there in, this is Paul, remember, who said, be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, 6. And here he's just torn apart. And he's trying to minister, and he has an open door for the gospel. And in our minds, we're thinking, this is perfect. He's in his sweet spot, right? I mean, this is a hole-in-one for him. Here he is. He's, he's at a place preaching. He loves evangelism, and there's an open door. And so the church is responsive. They're, they're receptive to the gospel. And yet, once again, the poor church at Troas loses out because Paul leaves because he's just in... just in knots about what's happening with my friends, the ones I love in Corinth. And so he leaves, goes back over to Macedonia where he thinks he can meet Titus because Titus is obviously on his way back. So he's going to retrace the steps that Titus would take to get to him. And rather than wait there in Troas, he leaves Troas. He leaves this place during a time where the church was growing and receptive to the gospel. And he goes to Macedonia and there he finds Titus, my brother, Um, And so at the end of verse 13, he says, but saying farewell to them, I went on to Macedonia. When you think about him not finding, like saying farewell to them, leaving them, and and being all concerned, again, it's sort of this, there's this tension because uh, he says, I I had no rest for my spirit. Um, So... How is it that Paul could be all wound up in 2 Corinthians 2, but in Philippians 4, say, be anxious for nothing? What are your thoughts? Are those in conflict with one another? How do they harmonize? He's human. Yeah, so maybe he's just being sinful. Do you think he's being sinful in 2 Corinthians 2? Right, he's overwhelmed. There are some key differences, I think, that are helpful for us because we get discouraged, we get overwhelmed, and one of the key ways for us to move from discouragement to encouragement is recognize why are we discouraged. And when we look at what Paul was saying, and first of all, in Philippians 4, he's dealing with probably a personal conflict. In Philippians 4, verse 2, remember he speaks about these two ladies, Yodia and Syntyche, who were... Who were evidently not getting along for some reason. He does use all-inclusive language. He says, be anxious for nothing. 
But that word anxious, again, can be used positively or negatively. It's a different word than the word here was used for despair, but it's used both ways. And the passage I was trying to think of earlier for this word is in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 and 33, where in those two verses, we find the same word that's translated anxious, and it's used once negatively and once positively. It's translated in most versions as concerning and being concerned. And in verse 32, it talks about people who are concerned about the things of the Lord, which is a positive thing. You should be concerned about the things of the Lord. In verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 7, it says to be, not be concerned about the things of the world. And so one of the things that, uh, that, that is a difference between Philippians 4 and this passage is in Philippians 4, it seems like when he says, be anxious for nothing, the context is a personal conflict. And hey, don't be concerned about these temporary things, these, these conflicts. Not that you wouldn't be concerned to try and resolve it, but that you would not be worried about it. But when the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, it can't mean that you never are concerned about anything. Because when we confront people about sin, they could just say to us, well, the Bible says, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. I'm not concerned about my sin. I'm not worried about my sin. You should be worried about your sin. If there's anything you should be worried about, it's your sin, because you have no hope without Christ. And so... uh, So the context there, even though he uses all-inclusive language, and even though we use that verse often when we see somebody who's worrying, the difference is Paul is not concerned about himself. He's certainly not concerned about the personal conflict that he had with whoever in the church at at Corinth, because back in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, not to say too much, to all of you. So he's saying, hey, I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about that person. He's concerned, how's the church doing? And if you ever have been involved in a church, maybe when you were really young or something like that, and you hear later, oh, man, that church, it's not doing well. Um, Either there's immorality there or doctrinally they're starting to drift and it's noticeable. Uh, Your heart just aches for that church. And you want to write the elders of the church and say, what's going on? And, and, and this is what Paul did. When Paul heard that this church, that he had spent a year and a half in, that he had a great affection for it, the church in Corinth, um, uh, he, he wrote to them often. We know of at least four letters that he wrote to them, and two we have. And so he had no rest for his spirit because he wanted to know how the church... So I think... One of the keys in moving from encouragement or discouragement to encouragement is why am I discouraged? Am I discouraged about things of the Lord and things that don't glorify Him? Or am I discouraged because things for me don't seem to be going so well? Okay, I'm going to move on to encouragement before I do any questions about those two verses. Yeah. Yes, so now I thought that, and I'm so glad you asked that. That's exactly what I, because I thought, I thought, you know, what would actually make him happy that he could find Titus? And really, it's not just Titus. It's actually that he could find 
Titus and hear the good news about the church because Titus had taken this severe letter to them and Titus was going to come back to him maybe with a letter from them but at least word saying hey they were receptive to it or hey they hate you they want nothing to do with you so that's why he's in turmoil and we know the answer because in chapter 7 turn with me this is really good chapter 7 of 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 second Corinthians he meets Titus second Corinthians chapter 7 Verse 5, he says, for even when he came into Macedonia, so now he, this is, this is, this is what, this, this is what Paul does. Paul digresses. Paul, this is, this whole section, chapter 2 through chapter 7, is called by some theologians, the great digression. Because Paul writes a letter. Why did he write the church in Corinth? One of the main reasons was to defend his apostolic authority. He also wanted to talk about giving. He does that in chapters 8 and 9, talks about giving. Chapters 10 through 13, apostolic authority. Chapters 1 through 7, the great digression. He's leading up to that as he opens, but here he diverts. And he doesn't come back to chapter 7, verse 5. So everything in chapters 1 through 7 is about what? Ministry. It's one of the greatest sections in the Bible about the Christian ministry. And it's all a tangent. It's a divinely inspired Side, rabbit trail. It's, 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 it's God's way of using Paul's mind to teach us about ministry. And Paul's concerned about ministry, but he, he, he begins this thought in chapter 2 about Titus, and he picks it up in chapter 7, verse 5, and he says in verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. Sound familiar? So he had no rest in Troas, so he went to Macedonia to try and find Titus, and he gets there, and he still has no rest. Um, But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Good news. He met up with Titus. And verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing and your mourning. So this is really cool because, because the thing that was wrapping him up was he couldn't find Titus and he couldn't hear how the church in Corinth was doing. But the thing that relieved him was not meeting Titus and hearing that the church was doing well. He found relief back in chapter 2, but not from that. And this is important for us because I think sometimes we pray, oh, you know, even, even if you're praying, Lord, I pray that this church gets back on the rails, that, that immorality is out of it, that people repent, that they follow you, that good preaching is there, and that doctrine, and we think of you know, a, a particular church that we're aching for, even if it, if, it, if it does, if our prayers are answered and that church is restored into sweet fellowship with God, we rejoice. But even if it doesn't, even if the chapter in the book of your life that causes you to be discouraged doesn't turn out the way you pray for it to be turned to turn out you can find encouragement and that's what's great about chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 cuz Paul finds encouragement but not from what he was praying for so let's take a look at the encouragement in chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 he begins with a joy, breaking out into a triumphal song, literally, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. What we find here, that this change in, 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 in chapter 2, verse 14, 
we find three factors that turned Paul's concern into celebration, or three factors that turn his grieving into gratefulness or his trouble into thanksgiving. We find, we find what made... Because this is, what, this is what we want to do. When we're discouraged, how do I flip the switch? How do I actually... How can I be encouraged? And the three factors, I'll give them to you now, they're these. The providence of God's leading, the privilege of serving God, and the privilege of serving others. Now, in short, just a little spoiler alert, I just gave you the outline, but I mean, it's the way to get out of discouragement is to get your eyes off of yourself and the way you would finish the story and get it onto God and serving him and others. And that's what we see. We see God and serving him and serving others. So first of all, let's look at the providential leading of God, verse 14. Verse 14, Paul recognized, regardless of whether or not things turned out in the way he wanted them to turn out, God's ways are always best. Not only are they best, they're triumphant. And he paints a picture here of a Roman triumph. He uses that word in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Those words would have for many brought about a picture of a Roman triumph. Now, a triumph was a parade. If I said, if I said to you, "Hey, it was it's a Fourth of July parade," you have a picture in your mind what that would be like. You know, there'd be people, red, white, and blue, throwing out candy, whatever. I mean, I don't know what parade you went to, but that's what those were the parades I went to. We all have a picture of that. Everybody had a picture of a Roman triumph. And in antiquity, in the first century, a Roman triumphal procession was a parade for a Roman general, but not just any Roman general. He had to have made certain accomplishments. He had to have gone to a foreign territory, and he had to actually have gone himself. He couldn't be like uh, one of the big guys who just stayed home. This was for the general who actually went. And he had to complete the, the campaign in that foreign land, meet all of his goals, which means that the, the territory of Rome had to have been expanded. So they not just regaining old land that had been taken away, they had to get new territory. And then he had to have seen at least 5,000 of his enemy fall. And if he had a victory like that, he could have a Roman triumph or a Roman parade when he came back. And the parade himself, these are well documented. You could read about these, but let me just try and outline what this would have looked like. And so it was back in Rome. It ended right before the emperor and the people would have lined the streets to see it. It had a certain order. The government officials and the Senate, they come first because all the politicians, they like to be seen before everybody else. So they, they would walk first, followed by trumpeters who would be heralding in the parade. And then the spoils of war were carried. Uh, it could have been weapons or gold or treasures. Um, you know, it, it could have been uh, something from the temple, their idols, whatever it was, those were carried through next. And, some t- and then there was a, a bull to be sacrificed to Jupiter. Sometimes they would actually take murals and paint them of scenes from a battle so that people could see like the video of, of what, what took place in the battle, or at least a picture of it. Then following that, you would have the captives in chains, not just everybody, not the 5,000 who were dead, that would be ridiculous, but the leaders, the, the rulers, and they were bringing them to execute them. So, hey, we're going to capture you, we're going to lead you back, we want to show people who their leaders were, and then we're going to kill you. And so after them were the Roman lictors, who were the executioners, they wore togas, they carried big rods in their hands, they were kind of the, 
the emperor's uh, force there. And then there were musicians with lyres singing. There were priests after them swinging metal censers suspended by chains, each one having burning incense inside. So the smell of this incense was just going now throughout everybody on the side. There also interspersed throughout this were ladies who were throwing rose petals and flower petals and potpourri. So there was the smell of beautiful flowers and burning incense. And then was the general who was in a chariot, a golden chariot with the crown of Rome and also four horses pulling him in that chariot, clothed in purple and gold. And then his family and his relatives came behind him. And then his army, coming back from battle, followed them. And then uh, they all ended up uh, at the emperor's palace. The sight, the smell was victory. The tone, the flavor, everything was victory, victory, victory. And look at what Paul says about God's ways all of God's ways, not just the way that we would like it to turn out, but 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. God always is victorious. Now, it's throughout the whole scripture. You find it again and again and again, even when it looks like, oh, this is terrible. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Listen, if you're struggling with discouragement, one of the doctrines that you should be studying should be the sovereignty of God, that he rules over all and all his ways are perfect. I like this quote that Spurgeon said about the sovereignty of God. He says this, Every particle of dust that dances on the sunbeam does not move an atom more or an atom less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. I just love that. That a little piece of water that bounces off a ship going through the water has its orbit set, just like the sun, moon, and stars, that God knows all of that. That the chaff in the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of the aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. And the fall of leaves from the poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. We serve a mighty God who is able to control and indeed has sovereign control over everything. Not that everything is a robot, but he knows and allows everything to happen for a purpose. And those purposes are always for our good and for his glory. And that's why we're able to rest and trust in him that during times that may seem tumultuous or times where we are like Paul when he says in verse 13, I had no rest for my spirit, we can also cry out as verse 14 says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. It's Christ who triumphs and Christ triumphs over who? Over Satan, 
who set the course of this world to make us doubt and try to get us to fear and cause us to be anxious. Remember Paul's words that he just wrote in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, right before verse 12, take a look at verse 11. He says, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So that Paul's just, he's just saying, hey, Christ is triumphant. God is triumphant. 1 John 3, 8 says, the one who does sin is of the devil because the devil sins from the beginning. The son of God was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And so the fact that God is in control of all things, that he uses all things for his glory and for our good, we can trust him, we can rest in that. And Paul, even long before he mentions finding Titus, he says he could glory and thank God, the word their grace or thanks be to God. He has this gratitude because he knows that he is in sovereign control and he wins. It's a triumphal procession. So we've seen that there is a factor of God's providential leading, which should bring us to help us to be encouraged when we're discouraged. But there's a second factor, and that is the privilege of serving God. Take a look at verse 14 again. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and manifests through us, a manifest uh, is a list, uh, reveals, the word means reveal. Um, if you look at a ship, a cargo ship, if you walk, if, if somebody, an inspector walks on the cargo ship, he doesn't have to open everything. He just says, give me the manifest. And it lists every container and every item that's in every container, or it's supposed to. And so it all becomes clear what it really is. And that word is used here that Thanks be to God who manifests through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. How can that be that God uses us sinners who were in rebellion against him to bring about that aroma, that sweet aroma in the triumphal procession, the smell of victory? He uses us to bring that throughout the world. This is amazing. Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. How can it be that someone like me and someone like you smells like Christ, smells like God's grace? Paul wrestles with that very issue. Take a look at verse, skip down to verse 16 uh, at the very end. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like many peddling the word of God from sincerity, but as, but as from sincerity, sorry, peddling the word of God. That word peddling is actually an interesting word. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it was a word to describe con artists, hucksters, people who were hawking items that really weren't what they said they were. Uh, oftentimes it was, for example, uh, people selling wine that they claimed to be was pure, but it had been diluted by water. You know what that's like, right? You've seen people, uh, you know, peddle things or be hucksters, and scammers. Scam. You get phone calls. You get phone calls like scam likely, you know? I, I, just for fun, I, I had my friend's cell phone unlocked, and so I changed my name to scam likely. And then I kept on calling him. Like whenever I was with him, I'd call him over and over and over again. 
And uh, just to watch him, like, you know, I can't believe I can do these calls. And then (laughs) eventually he tried to find my name, and he couldn't find it, so he searched his texts, and he texts me, he says, how come your name is Scam Likely in my... (laughs) But I digress. Uh, So we're... These con artists, I'm... Don't take the illustration. Okay, so here we go. Uh, Have you ever tried to share Christ with someone, someone that you love, and you talk about your relationship with Christ, but you can see and you know that in their mind, they're associating it with a different Christ? They're associating with other people before who brought down the name of Christ. Maybe it was a health and wealth prosperity gospel person, or maybe it was um, somebody who's legalistic, a saved by works Christ. Or maybe it was just a, a lip service, false faith. It's, it, it's important that when you're sharing Christ with someone, sometimes you say, listen, I know that you've run into other people who've talked about Christ, and it's so clear that it's a sham in their life. But the Christ I'm talking about is not that Christ. Sometimes we have to speak out against those who've defamed the name of Christ so that we can lift high the true Christ in our speech. Otherwise, people will... And I think that's what Paul's going through here. Paul, Paul, he says in verse 17, we are not like the many. He's saying, hey, the the gospel I'm talking about is not like these people who are peddling the word of God, but we are sincere as from sincerity, as from God. In the sight of God, we speak Christ. Now, sometimes you might think, well, you know, we look at, we look at this and you look at the personal pronouns, we are not like the many. And he talks about we are the fragrance, we are a fragrance of Christ. Um, and, and verse 14, manifest through us. Who are the us? Who's Paul talking about when he says us and we? I, I think he's, he's talking about himself and Titus and Timothy and their co, the, 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 the people together who are preaching Christ. And you say, well... That's, this is a great sermon for you, pastor, because you preach Christ, but I'm not a preacher. But remember that this passage is within the context as well of Christian behavior. If, if you turn back to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5, just look back and refresh where we were last time we were in 2 Corinthians. He says, but if, is it, if any has caused sorrow, he has not caused sorrow to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which is inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should graciously forgive and comfort him, lest one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Therefore, I encourage you, reaffirm your love for him. Again, going back to the context, what's going on here? Paul's writing Corinth, this church that he's all wrapped up about, because he had written to them at one stage that they needed to discipline him out. But now the guy's actually responded and is back in the church, and they're not loving towards him. So in this book, which came after the severe letter, which told them, hey, be obedient to Christ by disciplining them out, now he's writing, be obedient to Christ by reaffirming your love for him. I love it. I love it that we are reminded, that this church was reminded, hey, it's one thing to tell people when they're wrong and rebuke them, but if they repent, it's not enough just to forgive them 
but you have to seek reconciliation by actively reaffirming your love for them, letting them know that you really love them. By this, Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So you have to use actions. You should use actions when you preach Christ. I, I never forget the story of a businessman who, 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 who uh, found out that a guy at his work came to faith in Christ. And he said, he said to him, you're a Christian? I'm so happy I'm a Christian. The guy said, you are? He said, I had no idea you're a Christian. In fact, you're one of the reasons why I didn't become a Christian earlier. Because I saw your life and it looked so happy and so content. And I thought, if he can be content without Christ, why can't I be? And so sometimes people who think I'm being a witness, I'm being a light, but they're not using the words, actually, it's detrimental to those around us. So you have to use the words, but you have to use your behavior as well and your attitude as well and you seeing things differently, but giving credit to God. And so that somehow becomes a sweet aroma to God. And may that be where you find your encouragement, not finding your encouragement in getting things done the way you think they should be done by saying, Lord, I don't know how, I'm so unworthy, but I'm gonna serve you. Again, this is basic because we all fall into the trap of keeping our eyes on ourselves. Woe's me, I've got this diagnosis. Woe's me, I've got this trial. Woe's me, I'm being treated this way. I lost someone. Woe's me. Paul says, you want to give satisfaction? Rejoice that God is victor. His ways are perfect. He is sovereign over all. And also serve him. You want to be encouraged? Serve him. That's the second way that that he finds encouragement. The third way is actually serving others. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. Our last factor that turns discouragement into encouragement We see in verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. Not only is the fragrance of Christ, which somehow we produce, pleasing to God, but it's it's beneficial for other people. It has a twofold effect, notice this. It's the smell of victory to the one who's been called by God into life. They are living because he's made them alive, and they have eternal life from life to life. It's the smell of victory, but it's the smell of defeat to the one who is still in their sins because they are dead in their sins, and they remain to be dead, and the smell of Christ is one of defeat for them, and you have that effect on them from death to death. To death. The same sun that melts, melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same message of God's grace in your life that brings encouragement to someone who sees their sin and repents of it, that also it should convict and cause a negative reaction in those who want to hold on to their sin and not repent. It would be natural for them to be opposed to you. And this is, again, a reminder to us that success in ministry, successful Christian living, is not in the results necessarily of all these people coming to faith in Christ. A door has been opened. But even when a door is not opened, when people are shut to the gospel, but your faithfulness 
is a pleasing aroma to the Lord and an aroma to those around you, those who are being saved, a sweet aroma, those who are not being saved, one that causes them to realize they are defeated. I, 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 you know, I, 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 um, especially when I lived in Africa, most of the people who, who come to me for counsel now are from Grace Church. And so they, I don't have a shingle outside my door that says I do counseling, but, but I'm, I'm happy to do counseling, especially for those who are in this group. But when I was uh, living in Africa, 19 years, I pastored there, and the community knew that there was a church there. The community knew that there was a pastor there. The community knew that, that they did counseling. And, and many Africans, much more than, than, than Americans, I would say, would go to a pastor for counsel. And I would get all, people from all walks of life coming in for counsel. And so one of the first questions I would ask them was, tell me, what's your experience with church? What do you know about Christ? Have you given your life to him? So they would tell me some sort of uh, uh, a testimony. And some of them, the testimony was, was, seemed very genuine. Some of them, it just seemed like, well, you know, I grew up in this country, so I'm a Christian. My dad was a Christian, so I'm a Christian, or whatever. And it, it was missing key elements like sin and repentance and trust. And so I would hear their testimonies, and then I would take them and walk them through several passages. And I would say to them, you see that confessing Christ as Lord, as master of your life, is what a true Christian is, that just saying that I'm a Christian doesn't make you a Christian, that even the demons believe and they shudder, and take him through various passages. And I would have people say, wow, you mean so I'm not really a Christian? Yeah, you're not really a Christian. Do you want to repent of your sins and trust in him today? No. No, I don't really want to do that. Some would, some would repent. Some would come to faith and say, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to trust in Christ. Uh, but thank you. Thank you for letting me know I'm not really a Christian. They would thank me, shake my hand, and thank me. And I feel like I was doing them a service because it's much better to be someone who knows you're not a Christian in this world than to be somebody who thinks you're a Christian and you're not. So in that way, I feel like I served them. And we, as the body of Christ, can serve others by really helping them to see their greatest need. And we can't change them, but we can help them to see whether they're a genuine believer or not a genuine believer. Those who are perishing, it's an interesting word, perishing here. It's a participle in the original. Some Greek scholars point out that it has a perfectivized aspect, meaning that it has a certain end of truly perishing. So they're hopeless apart from the gospel. And if you're hearing this message, and you're one of those people that you've never really repented of your sins, that you don't really know true encouragement, that you're always trying to make things work out your way, and you've never really thought about submitting to God and, and trusting Him and rejoicing that things will work out His way, and you're thinking more about yourself than really about serving Him or serving others, then this day I, I, I just call upon you to consider your life. Who is your Lord? 
Are you one of these people who just said you're a Christian, but you haven't really truly repented of your sins and given your life to him? And you haven't trusted in his work on the cross to pay for your sins. Somehow you're thinking of your own works righteousness, that somehow you're good enough. Repent, realize that that is not the way of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I call upon you, encourage you, repent and trust in Christ. He is your hope. And if your hope has been in this world or you have no joy or confidence in Christ, repent and trust in him. And for those of you who have, may your discouragement grow into encouragement based off of the providential leading of God, the privilege of serving God, and the privilege of serving others, and may that be an encouragement to you. We have just a few minutes left. Um, any questions? Yes. So this word as, as fragrance in the Old Testament was used to, uh, to mean well-pleasing to God. And so I think it's a similarity. It brings, it brings back that picture that somehow, um, you know, uh, sacrifice was pleasing, could be pleasing to the Lord. But again, it has to do with your heart and your attitude. And, and the picture here is uh, of somehow the fact that our attitude even and our words to others can be pleasing to God. Yeah. All right. Yes. Yeah, I would say that there is a depression which is not necessarily sin, and I think Paul is depressed here. I think Paul is depressed because he was longing for this church. His heart ached for him, much like a parent aches for your children when you know your children are making bad decisions. It affects your family, and that was Paul's relationship with the church, and that's why he was a wreck but not a total loss. Depression is not a sin, but it's a fine line. It's a slippery slope that slips from depression to despair. Because when you start thinking, I have no hope, um, then, then that's sin because in Christ, we have hope. We have hope. All right, let's pray. Thank you again, Father, for this time together. We thank you for the joy that it is to be able to understand your word. We thank you for this, this uh, section of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, which reminds us that um, we should focus our attention and our hearts and minds on you and then on others. Such basic, but such a good reminder to us, such basic truths and, and thoughts, but, but we need to remind ourselves of this daily. So help us to live a life that's different than the life that people live who love this world. May we exude a peace that passes all understanding and may it be genuine and may we use the words that explain why we have that peace. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys.